Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. If you turn your Bible today to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and following to the end of the chapter. Acts 2, 37. We are doing a series on what do disciples do? It's a doing faith. God is a working God. We're supposed to be a working people. God is an active God. We're supposed to be active as well. Now, we recognize by grace He comes in our life. He changes our life. But the fruit of that change means that we do what He wants us to do. And so we're just going through the book of Acts, trying to figure out these disciples, what do they do? And the first thing we said was they spend time with Jesus. They make sure... They're spending time with the Lord, learning from Him, absorbing Him, worshiping Him. They spend time with the Lord. Second of all, they wait for more. Listen, once you get saved, you need to know this this morning. That's not all that there is. And some of you are feeling even now, there's got to be something more than this faith. There is. And so he tells these disciples to wait for that. And that is actually a person the third person of the Trinity called the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Wait for that Spirit. The Spirit's going to come on you, and then do we start lift off in a serious way for this Jesus movement to move right across the Roman Empire. So that is a hilarious moment. So we spend time with Jesus. We wait for more. And then the third thing is this. After the Spirit fills the disciples and their message convicts 3,000 that day to come to the Lord, the day of Pentecost, now what? So that's what we're about ready to read. The now what? We've talked about the difference between adrenal Christianity and coronary Christianity. Adrenaline versus the regular thump, thump beat of the heart. Well, we're going to talk about that here in just a little bit more in a minute. But we're going to hear the Word of God, Acts 2, verses 37 and following. Will you please stand in reverence to the Word of God? Acts 2, 37. Peter's words convicted them deeply. And they said to him and to the other apostles' brothers, What should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must turn from your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord to our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this generation that has gone astray. Those who believe what Peter said were baptized and added to the church, about 3,000 in all. They joined with the other believers and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, sharing in the Lord's Supper and in prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together constantly and shared everything they had. They sold their possessions and shared the proceeds with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their group those who were being saved. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, Lord God. Lord Jesus, teach us, Lord God. Teach us to return to our first love. Let us long for you, Lord God, like we used to long for you, Lord Jesus. Teach us to be a generous people, Lord God, to love those who are not loved. 
Help us to hear what the pastor has to say to us today. May you bless his words and may it touch each and every one of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so very much. Wonderful. You may be seated. So, by the way, I've never heard that translation before. I, I like that. What was that? What is the translation? Uh, the, living, the, new living. the New Living Translation. By the way, John Oswald, our dear friend, worked on that. He was a major editor of that. I, I like that part where it said, and he preached a long time. Isn't, isn't that how it read? Could we make the argument that once a group of people fill with the Spirit, there's long preaching? Who wants to affirm that this morning? Amen? Yeah. Not quite as much as enthusiasm as I had expected. All right, so we won't preach that long. But we, uh, we do have a few points to make, okay? And uh, so let's get to these. First off, adrenal Christianity versus coronary Christianity. Adrenal Christianity is, woo, we get excited, all right? We get excited. And by the way, the day of Pentecost, if there was a more exciting day in the church, I would be shocked. How do you get more excited than that? The Spirit fills, and 3,000 come to know the Lord. Nothing had ever been seen like that. And all of a sudden, man, the Lord is obviously on the move. That was what we call an adrenal day, which is to say adrenaline. Oh, anybody ever had a rush of adrenaline in your life? They say you can do miraculous things when adrenaline is flowing. I don't know, we, we probably, they say moms can stop cars, like rolling cars, stop them when they get the adrenaline going and they see that car headed for a little one. I mean, things like that over and over again. We hear adrenaline stories, and let me say, I like adrenaline Christianity, but it's not enough. Amen? It's not enough. Listen, I believe Pentecost was an adrenaline day, but after the adrenaline rush, after the Spirit fills them, there comes the next dynamic, and disciples are about coronary Christianity. Coronary is the heart, it's thump, 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 hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of times a day, thump, 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 thump. Now, I'm big on uh, adrenal Christianity, I'm big on adrenaline, but if you don't have the regular thump, thump, we're in trouble. So which would you rather have? And I'm going to tell you right now, Acts 2 has both, so I'll take both. But the thump, thump of this thing is what endures through the week. It's what endures through the month and through the year. And when you have a tough time in your life and you're down in the depths and you're crying out to God, it's the thump, thump that will keep your faith alive. And so I want to be all about that. And when we talk about what do disciples do, they finally get down to kingdom business. That is, they take their adrenaline rush and say, what do we do now to the thump, thump? And so here we go. The first thing they do is they devote themselves to teaching. That's in verse 42. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayer. But the first thing is the apostles' teaching. Now, what do you think the apostles were teaching them? First off, I love the definition of learn. Learn means, finally, changed behavior. You don't learn something because you have it here. You learn something because this thing here moved down into your hands and to your feet, and you started doing something with it. You have not learned if you just say, hey, on the test, the answer is A and not B, and you end up being correct. That is not learning at its purest form. You learn when you finally do something with what went into your cranium. All right? So I think what they're trying to say to these early disciples is, This is what the Bible... Now, the only Bible they had at that point was the Old Testament. 
And the Bible they really hunkered in on was the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus had been with them, if you remember, and had taught them, this is how you find me in the Torah, in the first five books. This is also how you find me in the prophets. This is how you find me there. I'm there. I'm who they were talking about back then. And so this whole thing of what the apostles are teaching them goes back to the Old Testament. I, uh, oh, I got to tell you, this, this is pretty important stuff. We all need to be serious learners of the Bible. Amen? Every one of us ought to have a hunger and thirst. And someone's going to say, well, that sounds good. But honestly, I don't hunger and thirst for it. And so what you need to do is this. Pray to God for a hunger and thirst and get eating anyway. Get drinking anyway. And I'm noticing here in my life, the more I watch, the more I get an appetite for it. The more I see it, the more I want to do it. The more I do it, the more I want to do some more of it. Uh, Sometimes. Last night... uh, you know how all the football teams right now are trying to schedule games. and uh, The SEC, they want to play. Way to go, SEC. The, the Big 12, they want to play. Way to go. But there's some whole conferences decided we're not playing because of the corona thing. I'm thinking, well, whatever. I'm just happy that the Big 12 said we're playing. Unfortunately, that means we actually have to play real ball games where we lose. And so the Kansas Jayhawks last night played, I don't know. I don't know who it was. Some team called the Canticleers. What, what, what is that for a name? Are you serious? And we got beat by the Canticleers. And so, you know what I said, I said uh, Lane? I, I looked at that last night. I looked at that. I read it, and I thought, I'm done. I'm not watching one more game this year. I don't want to hunger and thirst after a bunch of losers. But, y'all, we do that all the time. What do we hunger and thirst for? The newspaper, the radio. Let's listen more and more and more and more and more and more. This is what he said yesterday. What's he going to say tomorrow? And we are listening into a losing proposition because it's the world. And the world's going down. But Jesus is going up. So what do you want to develop an appetite for? The Kansas Jayhawks and their losing campaign this year to try to win one? I kid you not. It'll be a miracle if they win one game. Do I want a hunger and thirst for that? It's a losing proposition. Or do I want a hunger and thirst for the Word of God? And say, Jesus, I want more and more and more of you. Even when I don't want more of you, I want more of you, if you know what I mean. And so let us develop that kind of hunger, that kind of thirst. And so it's the Bible. Kinlaw said this one day. He, was, he said, I was in a class with a very famous man named Otto Pieper. He was in Princeton, and Pieper was a famous, famous theologian. And at the end of the class, one of the students held up their hand and says, Dr. Pieper, uh, I want to ask you, what are the must books you think we ought to be reading in the coming days? It's, it's almost over here. Some of our careers are ending here at Princeton. So I'd, we'd love to have a list of the must books. And Pieper got kind of this uh, sphinx-like face. And he says, there's only one must book. He didn't even have to say what it was. They understood in that class that day what it was. Y'all, there's only one must hunger and thirst in your life. It's the Lord God found in the book. Amen? And so we get that. The second part here is undoubtedly they were talking about their experience and that experience eventually becomes the Gospels. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No question they're saying, hey, when we were with Jesus, whoo, you should have seen that day when he said, hey, don't have enough bread? Watch this. And we got enough bread. We got leftovers. Fish? Hadn't got enough fish to eat? How about that? We got enough fish. That was a day in the kingdom. And they're talking about these stories. Remember that day when he went to the leper and said, be cleansed? And the leper was cleansed. Remember that day when they're about ready to stone the adulterous woman? And she got up and walked away. And the people who were about ready to do the stoning were shamed because of their own sin. Oh, my goodness. They're talking about their experiences. Y'all, we need to talk about our experience, too. The only people to experience Jesus weren't the disciples. If you're a Christian today, you've experienced Jesus already today. Amen? So you need to talk about that, Jesus, today. You need to talk about your experience with Christ even now. No one's going to believe us if we just go, hey, this is what the Bible says. Everybody wants to know what the Bible says at their... (laughs) At the marrow of their bones, they do. But what they also need to know is, what have you experienced? What are, what are you doing with Jesus? How has it impacted you? And one thing for sure, if we believe the Bible and live like hell, they're definitely not going to believe us then. They're going to run from our faith. But y'all, we need to know that there's... I'm reading right now, I, uh, you know, one of my heroes is the Methodist missionary E. Stanley Jones. And Stanley Jones... His very first sermon, he was a kid, he got up behind the pulpit and he decided he was going to be God's lawyer. He says, I'm going to lay out the case for Jesus. And he started to speak and he didn't have anything come out of his mouth. It was a horrifying moment for him. He was about ready to be God's lawyer and he didn't have anything to say. There was no case to be made. And Stanley Jones then said, I heard an inner voice said, that said to me, Stanley, talk about what I have done for you. How you have experienced me. And Stanley Jones says, that's what I talked about that day. And I've always remembered, Stanley Jones without a living experience with Jesus isn't much of an E. Stanley Jones. And the same goes for you too. We need an experience that we can talk about. Now I want to show you something here. Uh, Something I saw the other day called the Wisdom Pyramid. Uh, and it looks like this. This is a book by Brett McCracken. I've already shared it with my seminary classes. But he says, this is kind of like that, uh, you know, they tell you a diet ought to include lots of the bottom and not so much at the top. He says, your daily diet ought to be the Bible. And that Bible, I would also include that the Bible, your prayer life with the Lord, uh, your meditations on Scripture. Then we go up and say, then we need to make sure we are dealing substantially with the local church and with local church tradition. And the tradition happens to be time-tested theology, wise people in Christian history, uh, wise people that we know that we can engage with in our lives. Uh, Then we go to things like nature and beauty, general revelation, natural and created beauty. We ought to be partaking of that. Then good books. And by the way, more old books than new books. I'm all for Max Lucado but I'd rather you read Thomas Akempis than Max Lucado. I'd rather you read Brother Lawrence than anything's written today. By the way, Max, love you. But he would say the same thing. You got a choice between me and some Christian whose work has endured for 500 years? Read the 500-year guy. And so we say we read good books. And look up there, the Internet. 
Any kind of internet? No. Internet from trusted sources. Only as needed. Prioritize content recommended by wise people. Listen, the internet's a great tool, but at the end of the day, we spend way too much time on it, on the junk of the internet. Can I get a witness on that? And then we go all the way up to social media. Use it sparingly. Learn to live without it. Too much is bad for your overall health. Y'all, no one is going to convince someone over to your political opinion because of your social media. So stop trying. Stop getting all up in a lather about, hey, what I need to be saying on social media so I can save the world somehow. You're not going to save the world with social media. I would say, go back down there to the bottom, engage in that, and try to figure out what the Bible is telling you to do today. So there you go. Most Christians today, the reason we have such an anemic faith in Western civilization, in this whole thing called the Western world, the reason we are so weak is because we're spending most of our day in social media and the internet. We don't read much anymore. (laughs) We're tearing up nature and beauty. We're not as engaged in the local church. And many of us don't have a regular extended pattern in the Bible. Y'all, you want to live as wise people, as sanctified people, as holy people, as disciples with power in your lives, and get that going in your life. And if at all possible, maybe the top two categories you can do without altogether. This is the way we used to live life, no longer. Because the world has suggested there's a better way to live, and we start, start with the social media being on the bottom and work our way up to the Bible, which is a little bitty thing at the top. So Jesus, I'm going to pray for my people right now. Could you convince the sheep of Dayspring to be people of the Word, devoting themselves to teaching? Amen? Now, they devote themselves to fellowship and to hospitality. Look at verses 42 and verse 46. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now, have I told you yet that one of the things the Freedom and Family, meaning Mary and I, we do on the way to church is, I say, open up the passage for today. And what do you see? Now, I'm not sure... I've told her this yet, but that's you discipling me, sweetheart. You know what she said this morning? She she knows Greek. She knows Hebrew. She knows Latin. So she knows words. And she looked down and said, hmm, I'm going to look that one up. I said, which one? She goes, sincerity. She looked up the word sincerity. It's only used once in the Bible, right here. Only once. You know what it means? It means simple and unalloyed, which means single and only. What were they doing? They were eating their meals together with simple hearts engaged on one thing, and that's the Lord. How cool is that? Could you make Dayspring Lord a people of sincere hearts? And so I'm going to say there is power in opening up your home to friends and seekers and having a sincere home, one that seeks the Lord in your conversation, one that seeks the Lord in the way you greet people, in the way you hug them, one that seeks the Lord in everything you do once you open your door to other people. 
But I'm going to tell you, when I came to know the Lord, and you know this, but when I came to know the Lord, it was a house church. But I'm going to tell you how the service started. We started out in the backyard playing basketball. Then we worked up a good sweat. We went in there and washed up a little bit. Then we sat down and started singing at the piano. We take turns singing solos because we were all going to be the next Barry Manilow, you know. So we're, we're singing the piano and, and having a good time and having a fun. And then we'd sit down and he'd start opening up the book. And then afterwards, we eat together. It was like, whoa, this is open house. I love this. No wonder I got saved there. Y'all open up your house. Start inviting people in. Start uh, doing the proverbial wash their feet. Help them enjoy Jesus the way you enjoy Jesus in your home. And watch to see what happens. Because there is revival in these times. The thump, thump revival that happens was a house-to-house revival. And it was hilarious, and it was good, and it was holy. We talked before about Friday nights for Jesus. I saw this idea. A bunch of Baptist people, I think, uh, did this. Uh, no one's ever taken it up here. I think it's a hilarious idea. What they started doing is that let's do Friday nights for Jesus. And what they would do is they would uh, have like three tables set up in their living room. And uh, it was for card game. I don't know what card game it was. I don't know, bridge or whatever else, but they would play cards. Uh, and as they were playing cards, they were talking. And as they were talking, they'd talk about, you know, the Kansas Jayhawks being so pitiful against the Canticleers, whoever they are, uh, the, uh, this or that. But then they'd, they'd work in the church. And the hilarious next event, what's going to happen at the church? And they'd start having these every Friday nights, once a month, Friday nights for Jesus, Friday nights for Jesus, Friday nights for Jesus. And pretty soon, this guy that had written this up says, there wasn't a single person. What we'd have was usually about half of us that were from the church, and half of us that weren't from the church, and others half of us that were at no church. And pretty soon, every single one of the unchurched people came to become members of our church because of the hilarious time we had together on Friday nights. There's power in a home given over to Jesus. I love the fact that the Wesleyan love feasts were substantially these events where you'd come and they'd just say, hey, we're eating bread tonight. And you'd think, if it's me coming over to your house, just if you invite me over to the house, I want something more than bread, okay? Is that fair enough? I just do. But that's all they served at the Wesleyan Love Feast. They'd break bread and then they'd praise God and give him thanks. And they'd say, you know, Edward, this is how you bless me this week. This is how you bless my life. And they start sharing. And there's tremendous love that would grow in that room because of these Wesleyan love feasts. Why? Not because there's power in the bread. It's because there's power in the home. And a home given over to Jesus. And a home given to praise and thanksgiving and sharing about one another. So first off, they devote themselves to teaching. They devote themselves to fellowship and to hospitality. Third thing was they devoted themselves to prayer. So they were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Listen, last week, some of you got interested in this. I don't think anybody actually looked at my Bible, but you can. Uh, but I had what I called a bother list. Because on, based on Luke 18.5, a judge finally gave to the woman what she was asking for because he says, <laughs> he says, I'm going to give her what she wants lest she wear me out. It says she kept bothering him and bothering him, and bothering him. So I said last week, everybody ought to have a bother list. Write it in your Bible. What's your bother list? That my husband would know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I'm going to bother Jesus until it happens. Or, hey, 
I'm in debt. $50,000, $75,000, $100,000 of debt. I've got a problem. I'm going to bother Jesus until he shows me the way out of debt. And he's not going to show me the winning lottery ticket. Or, I got an addiction. And I need help. I need celebrate recovery. I need an A group. I need something. And so I'm going to plug into that group and I'm going to keep bothering Jesus until I get to sobriety. Oh, Jesus. We're going to bother him. I think a church ought to have a bother list. What would be on Dayspring's bother list? I, I got to tell you, I didn't even think about it till this week. Dayspring's going to get, we're going to get together a bother list. You need to tell me what you think ought to be on that bother list. And by the way, if you say revival, I'm going to ask you this question. You mean an adrenal revival or a coronary revival? Tell me what the coronary revival looks like. And then let's start moving towards that idea of revival. What do we do day by day, week by week, month by month, in order to be God's people? And so, uh, go to the next frame there, bud. So I've been thinking about this. The, the, uh, Stanley Jones put this together. He called it the Lord's Prayer. He says, when I look at the Lord's Prayer, I see the realignment side on the left and the results side on the right. But the first part of the prayer says, Our Father, Thy name, Thy kingdom, Thy will. It's not, it, it's not very me, 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 my, my, I, I, is it? It's no. I want to realign myself with you first, O oh Lord. And I think they spring ought to do the same thing. How can we realign our collective lives with the Lord? Because when we do that, oh my goodness, watch to see the revival that will come. Because if we do the realignment thing, then guess what happens? He will give to us. He will forgive us, and we will feel His forgiveness. He will lead us. He will deliver us. Who wants the right side? You don't get the right side unless you have the left side. So with this in mind, what should be our bother list? I'm going to say our bother list probably ought to accentuate first and foremost and mostest of all the left side, and then we'll get to the right side. But Lord, how can we surround you as your children, as you as our Father together as a church? How can your name become what we are all about mostest? How can your kingdom come alive amongst us? How can your will explode at Dayspring Community Church? And then guess what? Oh, my word. To see what he'll do on the right side, I can't even, I'm not sure I can even fathom it. But that's the kind of church we need to be, have a bother list going. They devoted themselves to teaching, to fellowship, to hospitality, to prayer. And then this, they devoted themselves to generosity. Now, this wasn't a giving requirement, but it does say they began selling their possessions and giving to any as they had need. I don't think this is a pocketbook thing nearly as much as an eye thing. They said, basically, I can see the world now as Jesus sees it. And I think I have the resources that Jesus has given to me to take care of that pitiful dilemma. I can see these dilemmas now because all of a sudden I'm filled with the Spirit of Jesus. I can see people in agony. I can see people who are addicted. I can understand there are folks out there at the prison that need me. I understand there are folks getting an abortion today that don't want to get an abortion. They just don't think there's any hope. I see it like I've never seen it before. And so, Lord, what I ought to do about it? He says, well, why don't you get out that wallet, get out that checkbook. 
How much do you have in your 403B or 401K? How much do you got saved up? That's mine, not yours. And since you asked the question, you can cash out, sell some possessions, and take care of that situation. You know what I do too. I'm giving you the grace right now to be that kind of person. One day it was cold in England. The year was 1737. And there's a guy named Wesley, John Wesley. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. A guy named John Wesley that had just got a job. It was a cool job. He was going to be a professor at Oxford. I mean, that's top of the heap. That's like the best teaching job you can get in the world. And so he's got it. And he says, man, this is great. They say, hey, we're going to pay you for this. You're going to pay me to teach? Whoa, how cool is that? Yeah, how much? He says, we're going to give you 30 pounds. I have no idea what 30 pounds is. Let's just say it's something like, I don't know, it'd be like a $30,000. Let's just say for purposes of simplicity this morning, it's $30,000, all right? You say, well, that's not very good pay for a teacher. Any teacher can relate, all right? So he said, still, this is the greatest job. This is the great job. And so and all of a sudden now. And he, uh, he just went out and, and, and took some of that money that they'd given to him and uh, bought some paintings for his wall. And he was hanging those paintings up when all of a sudden he hears someone outside uh, and he wonders, what's making the commotion out there? And he opens up and he sees a maid. And uh, it's on a very cold English day. And uh, she is sweeping and freezing. She's freezing. She doesn't have a coat. And so Wesley says, oh, my goodness. Woman, do you have a coat? No. He says, would you like a coat? Yes. Well, here, let me give you. And he reaches into his pocket, and he has nothing. Because he just just gave up the last cent in his pocket for that painting on the wall. He said, I felt like the Lord said to me in that moment, oh, my servant, you are wicked. (laughs) <laughs> you're wicked? He says, so I decided i got to do something about this. Now, the adrenal Christian would say, I'm going to sell the painting, and maybe he should have, and maybe he did. I didn't get that part of the story. I don't think he did sell the painting. What he said was, I'm going to put myself on a budget. That's thump-thump Christianity, right? I'm going to put myself on a budget. And so he did. He was making 30 pounds. He says, Really, all I need is to live on is 28. So he said, I'm going to give two to the causes of the kingdom, especially for the poor. And so he lived on 28, he gave two away. So if you'll know, that's not quite a tie. That's about 7%. Still, that's what he decided I could do this year. Next year, he made, because he was a writer, he was an editor, he made twice as much. He made 60 pounds the next year. Now, if you're Matt Friedemann, this is what you'd do. You'd say, okay, I couldn't tithe last year, but this year I think I can. So this year, whoo, I can give three times the amount. I'm going to give six pounds away this year. That's if you're Matt Friedemann. That's why I'm not John Wesley. John Wesley said, hmm, well, I said last year that I needed 28 to live on. So I'm just going to add that 30 into the two, and I'm going to give away 32 pounds. So get a load of that. Second year, He's making 60 pounds. He gives away 32, and he lives on 28. 
Third year, I kid you not, you're not going to even believe this. Third year, he made 90 pounds. He just kept making money. Eventually, he's going to be one of the richest guys in England, except he's not because he keeps giving everything away except for those 28 pounds. So the next year, he gave, my math starts failing me. Don't even try it. Don't, I don't need to hear the answer. Just know your pastor's dumb as a rock at math. And so whatever it is, 90 minus 28, he gives away to the poor and to the kingdom. The next year, you're not even going to believe this story. You're not going to believe it. You're going to say, whatever he was doing, I want to learn how to do. Because the fourth year, he made 120 pounds. Lived on 28, gave the rest away. Why? Because he was filled with the same spirit of Acts 2. And he said, if I have money, it's not because John Wesley has it, it's because Jesus gave it to me. And he all of a sudden has given me eyes to see chambermaids who are freezing to death in my hallway. Therefore, maybe I ought to do something about it. And what happened? Wesley devoted himself to generosity because of that spirit of God that was in him, pulling him to sacrificial giving. Now, can I tell you the end of the story? One year he made 1,400 pounds. I got to tell you, I'm really disappointed in Wesley that year. He lived on 30. John, what a breakdown in principle here. He lived on 30, not 28. Oh, no, he gave himself a raise. He lived on 30 and gave the balance away. Y'all, generosity. He's a generous God, and he wants to come and live with us to make us generous people. And you say, is that what you want us to do, Matt? No, what I want you to do is to say, Jesus, give me the eyes that these people had back in Acts 2. Give me the eyes that John Wesley seemed to have to see needs that you might want me to go sell a possession for to meet a need. Hmm. Then they devote themselves to both large and smaller gatherings. It says, they met together in the temple, and they met together from house to house. Most churches have two levels of discipleship. The big level, this level, and then they go down to the Sunday school. And that's the whole nine yards. Big level, Sunday school. Big level, Sunday school. In this church, we do have a Sunday school class. Uh, Billy taught it this morning out of Romans. Excellent. You need to go. Come here an hour early and and get in on the, the Romans Bible study. But on the whole, what we do is meet together on Sunday evenings. And if you can talk your group into meeting another time, that's just fine. But we generally meet together on Sunday evenings. That becomes our Sunday school class. But what we have said is, if at Dayspring you want to get serious about discipleship, coming to this is a great thing, but you also need to get into something smaller. Traditionally, that's been church and Sunday school. But now we believe in discipleship groups that meet in, hallelujah, meet in homes. And we want people to open up their homes that people might come in and be refreshed by the gospel inside of those homes. So we believe in that. But can I share share with you something? I also believe in discipleship groups that are even more intense after the Sunday school class. And so that's why your pastor is willing to meet with you if we can work out a time. But at 6 a.m. on Fridays, people come to my house. We had had five or six guys there this week, Billy. Billy was one of those guys. Billy, David, go to this church, Steve. And what these guys do is say, hey, we think there's a more intense level than simply the Sunday school level. Therefore, we want to be involved at that level as well. And then, if I may say so, Billy and David have also opted for a fourth level. 
That is a spiritual guidance level to say, can we just get together with you occasionally and you just read us whatever riot act you feel like we need to hear? And by the way, I I need that to happen in my life too. But the truth is, that's an even more intense level. So Billy, for instance, I'm just saying for instance, but he's in four-tier discipleship. And I think Billy would say, and it's kind of changed the way I see things, the way I do things, the way I give. It's changed me. Y'all, don't, don't let this group right here, right now, we love that you're here. We want you to keep coming. We want you to bring your friends. This group needs to grow. But this level does not suffice for serious discipleship group. You need more. You need a home. You need spiritual direction. You need a discipleship group. And your pastor... I will help you with any dynamic of that you need help with. But Jesus, I've just been praying, Lord, you know I have, for men's groups, women's groups at the discipleship level that we can grow and intensify and have thump, thump revival here at Dayspring Church, not just because of the temple, but because of the other levels of intense learning you want to happen in our lives. The last thing is this. Look at the outcomes in verse 47. Because of all these things, because of teaching and fellowship and hospitality, because of prayer and generosity, because they were meeting in large groups and small groups, look what happens. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Oh my goodness. The Lord's adding to their lives, adding to their numbers, adding to their groups because of all these things. First off, praising God. I don't know if any of you have ever read the short stories of Nathaniel Hawthorne. <clears throat> he has one called The Great Stone Face. And uh, I could launch into this one for a while, but let me just give you the very short version. Ernest grows up in this village, and he's always been told there's going to come into this land one day, the Great Stone Face. And across his lifetime, and, and Hawthorne covers his whole life, he says across a lifetime, three imposters came in. And the prophecy always was, someone's going to come that looks like that face. What face? What face? I don't get it. What face are you talking about? It's kind of a Mount Rushmore thing right outside of town. And it had eyeballs you could see and lips and a nose. And it wasn't done by any carver. God had put that face into the side of the rock. And so people would go out there and say, whoa, look at them eyes. Look at that nose. And then they'd start saying, hey, someone's going to come that looks like that. And three times across Ernest's life, Someone came in and says, I am the stone face. And three times, he went out and looked and said, no, not him. That's not the one. So he's gonna, it looks like he's going to die without this thing happening. But one day he goes out, and he goes out to the hillside, and he begins to talk about the great stone face. And many people gathered around because he was the expert. Ernest, across his life, had studied the stone face, read poems about the stone face, talked over and over about the stone face. And he became the expert, the resident expert. And one day he's given a talk on, on the side of the hill. And this famous poet had come, who'd written a very famous poem about the stone face, came and sat down. And as he was listening to Ernest speak, he looked up and kind of got a weird look on his face. He looked around and said, has anybody else notice? Oh my goodness. People of the village, don't you see what I see? Ernest! Ernest! Ernest is the great stone face. And everybody looked at Ernest and looked back at the mountain 
and thought, whoa, look at the likeness. Ernest looks just like that rock. Like the nose, like the eyes. Y'all, they praised God. And by praising God, it means they looked in his face continually and were changed by that face. The next thing it says here is not just they praised God. It says they had favor with people. And as Mary said this morning, that's about ready to change. Yeah, sure enough, in the next chapter it changes. But Mary then said, you know something? (laughs) They had favor with all the people that really mattered. Not the intelligentsia, not the power, but the people that lived in the real homes and did the real jobs. The blue collars. They, they were all the people that they grew in favor with and they came to Jesus by leaps and bounds. Why? Because they saw it was real. The realest real they'd ever known, they saw it was real. And then, praise God, had favor with people. Then the addition eventually becomes even multiplication in later chapters. People were excited that the Spirit of God could cause such a life as that. Son Kierkegaard was the Danish existentialist. And uh, he talked to people in Copenhagen about the gospel. And they just weren't interested. And he went to church, and they weren't interested in church either. So he starts writing about these Christians, and it was pretty scathing what he said. Very prophetic, very harsh. One day he's writing in his journal, and he has a journal entry called The Tame Geese. Now, I like this because it doesn't end up well for the geese, and I don't like geese, you know what I mean? <laughs> for all they do in my parking lot, I don't like these geese. So I'm happy to tell you this story. He says, imagine a land where geese live. And uh, day by day, week by week, month by month, they, they get their best going to church goose clothes on, and they waddle into goose church. Now, Spielberg could do something really great with this. I'd love to see it. Anyway, these geese would waddle in and they'd squat in their goose pews. And the head gander's back there, flopping up his uh, feathers. And of course, now that I've got the bald thing going, I can't even do that right. But he's looking in the mirror and flushing up his goose feathers and getting everything just right. And he whips out there and he gets behind the goose pulpit. And he opens up his golden gilded goose Bible. And oh my goodness, he leads them in lectionary readings about wings. He leads them in songs about wings. And then he preaches a great message that day on God's great gift to geese. And you all know what that is. Wings. And he says, hey, with wings you can fly. You can soar above your pens and fences. And you can flap because this world's not our home. We're just a flapping through. We should give thanks to God for such a great gift as wings, and the place was filled with a bunch of boring Christians, but they came alive in that moment. They came alive, and as Kierkegaard writes in his journal, he says, all the women were curtsying, and all the men were bowing, and feathers were flying. It's, it's quite a day at Goose Church. They don't really see that much life, not usually. I mean, it's quite a day at Goose Church. He says, so he, he calms them all down. He says, okay, okay, okay. Now, we've heard about wings. We've done responsive readings about wings. We've sung about wings. It's time now, geese. It's time to head home. 
Let's go! And Kierkegaard says, they all waddled home. Now, that's the punchline. If you're not smiling or something right now, you missed it, okay? Can I say it again? They all waddle home. And Kierkegaard keeps writing in his journal. He says, hmm, well, and then they grew fat and plump. And they were very well liked by the humans in the land because then they were butchered and eaten. And that was the end of that. Y'all, you've been given the wings of the Spirit. You've been given the thump, thump life of Jesus. And so what he says is, mount up with wings and fly. Mount up with wings. Don't waddle home. Don't do it. Some of you out there on the wings, you're going to want to waddle home. Don't do it. I'm talking to you all. Don't do it. It's time to fly. We mount up with wings because the Spirit has given us wings and He's filled them with His breath, with His wind. And so it's time now, day spring, to fly for Him. It's time to get down to business. It's time to take wings seriously. And there you have it today. The last two chapters of Acts 2 tells you how to get down to kingdom business. We please stand? Jesus, this is an extraordinary group of people. And they do extraordinary things every week of their life. But Lord, we want more. And so this group right here, right now says, we want more. Can you say that? We want more. And so Jesus... Fill them to the very brim with your spirit. And then get them down to business. Get them to flying. Get them to being being all the spirit-filled people you ever imagined that they could be. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Sign up sheets out here. Let's get signing.